Good morning. I know you're probably thinking, isn't this the guy they had that gave a sermon about a cartoon character? Yes, it is. And I'm not going to talk to you about a cartoon character today. I'm going to talk to you about professional wrestling. We all probably have some varying backgrounds when it comes to professional wrestling. For me, it was something that I grew up watching with my grandparents. Uh, One of my earliest memories is watching the Four Horsemen turn on Sting in the late 1980s. That's always stuck with me. Um, But we all come with those differing understandings. So to help you all out, I'm going to give you some backgrounds of professional wrestling before I kind of get into the meat of what I'm talking about. The sermon's title is The Faith of Cody Rhodes, and the subtitle is Are You All In? Cody Rhodes, as you can guess, is a professional wrestler. But first, like I said, let's talk about what professional wrestling is. So professional wrestling, from my little background that I did preparing for this, I traced it back to at least the early 1800s around France and Western Europe, and it was a kind of a circus thing. People would travel with strongmen, and strongmen would challenge people in the crowd to come and try to wrestle them, and it was a way to make money. You would say, who's the toughest person out here? Can you come and take me on? And then from that, it kind of grew to be a more of a kind of a choreographed thing where they'd have two people trying to put on a match to entertain a crowd, but it was in a way to try to get you emotionally invested. It was fixed. They knew who was going to win, but the crowd didn't. The crowd was going to be trying to hope for this guy they liked to kind of beat the guy they didn't like. And it was all about getting you emotionally invested so you can get your money. And so it became something that took over Western Europe, and it became a big sport in America. We kind of think of professional wrestling as being an American sport. And uh, I have some pictures up here. You can kind of see wrestling throughout the decades, through the early 1900s. You can see the 1970s and then the modern era, the 2000s. I hope everyone's okay. So uh, famous wrestlers that we might know based on generations we're from, there's Gorgeous George in the 1930s, Lou Thez and Bobo Brazil and Dick the Bruiser. Those are kind of guys from the 1930s to like the 1970s periods. And then from then, we get to kind of the people that many of us might know, the bigger name wrestlers, Andre the Giant, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, the Macho Man Randy Savage. That's kind of the 70s through the 90s period. And then the more modern wrestlers we have, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena, that kind of takes it to 2010. So some, everyone in here, I would think, would be able to at least know one of those names. You kind of heard of these people, or at least maybe in passing, or you've at least heard of professional wrestling. Um, going from there, I want to talk about a wrestling company, the WWE. Up on behind me, you see a map. This is a map of wrestling territories. In the early 1900s, the wrestling companies, they all kind of split up across the country, and each country or each wrestling company had their own territory that they would run their market. They would travel around, and these would be the people that they would sell their product to. And you didn't interact with any other person's territory. So the New York group stayed in New York. The Portland group stayed in Portland. The wrestlers themselves would travel around. Once you became a big enough name in one company and you felt like you couldn't grow anymore, you would go to another territory and you would start over. That way, everything would always stay fresh. You would never lose out on money. You'd always be growing. And the territories all respected each other, and they stayed out of each other's area. That all changed in the late 1970s into the 1980s. Um, Focusing on that New York area, there was a company that was Capital Wrestling, then it became the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and then it became the World Wrestling Federation. And at that point, it was run by a man named Vince McMahon. And he had a son, Vince McMahon Jr., who bought out his company. 
And when he bought out his company, he had a secret plan that his father didn't know about. He decided he wasn't going to respect the territories anymore. He was going to take over everyone's business. He decided uh, he saw what was happening with cable, cable company uh, becoming big, and you can put your product out into a national audience, that this was his chance to take his company and put it in the national audience and take everyone else's business. And so he invested in uh, all the company's big names. He would bring in the wrestlers from Portland, from San Francisco, from the Texas area, and he'd bring them into his company. So he would have all the big wrestlers on his company, and he was going in on cable. And so people would see, well, this is where the big names are. So this must be the big company. And this is at that same time, like when the ABA and the NBA were kind of merging. So the NBA was becoming big. He wanted to be the NBA professional wrestling. He wanted to be the major leagues. And he didn't stop there. He also started taking over their broadcasting. So he would buy out their time slots in different um, channels so that people would see, oh, this is big time wrestling. These are big names. And eventually he kind of put everyone else out of business. And that leads us to the 1990s, which so many of us might be aware of when it was just the WWF and then WCW. Those were kind of the only two big companies left. And that battle lasted for about four or five years. And then in 2001, Vince McMahon bought out the WCW. And so he was the only big company left. And that's important in the background of what we're going to be talking about. You need to understand that WWF, which eventually would become known as the WWE, is the big place to be. If you want to make money a professional wrestler, if you want to be seen as a star, this is where you had to be. It's kind of like a monopoly on the professional wrestling business. And that leads us to the person we're talking about today, Cody Rhodes. Cody Rhodes, he is on the left here. He's the younger gentleman in the suit. He was the son of Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes was a very famous wrestler in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and he was a champion in places outside of the WWF. He was kind of seen as the southern wrestling champion, whereas WWF is more of a northern kind of wrestling thing. And he had a son named Dustin, who you see with the face paint on, and then Cody was the youngest. He was the baby. And Cody wanted to make it in this business like his father and like his brother. He wanted to be big, and so he went to the WWE. He trained there. He got on their television there, and he saw himself as being just as great as his father, just as great as his brother. He could be a big name. He could be a main event player, a champion, and he could make money. The problem was the WWE didn't see him like that. They saw him as kind of a minor level guy. Cody wasn't a, he's kind of like how you would kind of see me. I'm not the biggest guy. I'm not the tallest. I'm not the strongest. They saw him the same way. He wasn't as tall as other people or as big. He didn't look like a kind of wrestler that they wanted to present. And Cody stayed in that company for a few years trying to push and prove himself and show that he was what he believed himself to be, a main event wrestler, a champion, a moneymaker. But after a while, he saw that it was really going nowhere. And so Cody left the WWE. And when he did that, that was kind of a big deal because where are you going to go? There were no other places that were seen as a big company. There was what was known as the independents, independent wrestling. Smaller little companies scattered around the country, some places in Europe and England. Um, but in America, there was nothing that was really big like the WWE. But Cody decided to bet on himself. He had some faith in himself, and he said, you know what? I can go out here, and I can show them what they're missing out on. And so he became an independent wrestler, and in doing that, he became a big name. I have some pictures here that you can see where he's wearing the jacket. He went to a company called Impact Wrestling, 
and he made big money for them, and he was getting a lot of attention. And then the lower picture, you can see him with the championship belt. He went to Ring of Honor, and he became a big name there, and he started making these companies a lot of money. He started pushing their name up in value, and he was showing, at least in his mind, that he, what he believed in himself to be true, that he was a big-name guy. And eventually he went over to New Japan Pro Wrestling. And in Japan, New Japan is the big wrestling company over there. It's the WWE of Asia. And so he was there in the biggest company there proving himself, becoming a champion over there, being a big name and making money. And it was getting to such a big deal that wrestling fans began to notice and they began to wonder, how long is it going to take before these companies can do what the WWE does. Can they sell out big arenas? Can they do big pay-per-views? Because they saw what Cody Rhodes was doing, and they said, he is a big name. So when's the change going to happen? And that leads to this tweet. Dave Meltzer is kind of seen as the big name uh, for news for professional wrestling. He's been covering professional wrestling since the late 1970s, 80s, and the 90s, and now he's the big name guy. So when people have questions about what's happening in the wrestling industry, people ask Dave Meltzer. So there was a guy who tweeted Dave Meltzer on May 16, 2017. He said, do you think ROH, that's Ring of Honor, can ever sell out an arena with 10,000-plus fans, something like Madison Square Garden? In essence, he was asking, do you think Ring of Honor can put on a big show like WWE? Can they get big crowds like WWE? They see Cody Rhodes here. They see what's happening. They feel the momentum change, and they're asking the guy, can it happen? And Dave Meltzer said, not anytime soon. I want you to take note of the time of that tweet, 2.12 p.m. 11 minutes later, 2.23 p.m., Cody Rhodes retweeted Dave Meltzer's tweet, and he said, I'll take that bet, Dave. He said, I already gave them their biggest buy rate, meaning I've already made Ring of Honor the most money they've ever made. He said, put the bucks, the young bucks, uh, and I on the card in three months to promote, and he's saying, we can do it. Eleven minutes. That's not a long time to consider that, to put yourself out there into social media for people to see that you say, I think we can put a, do a big enough show like the WWE. That takes a lot of belief in yourself. It takes a lot of faith in yourself to do that, to put your name out there. And again, 11 minutes to make that decision. Well, it was more than three months, but in September 1st, 2018, Cody Rhodes and the M-Bucks put on a pay-per-view called All In. It was called All In because they put their name into it. They put their own savings into it, their money into it. They put on an independent wrestling show. And this independent wrestling show, it did have more than 10,000 people show up. In fact, it had 11,263 people show up. That was a sellout. And it didn't just sell out. It sold out in less than 30 minutes from when the tickets went available. So in less than 30 minutes, Cody Rhodes was able to show that his belief in himself was valid. He said, look what I've been able to do because I believe in myself. I am a big name, and we can do this. And it wasn't just a big sellout as far as like people showing up. The pay-per-view itself was sold, uh, sold 50,000 pay-per-view buys, which is the most pay-per-view sold by not a major company since 1993. So it sold a lot of tickets. It sold a lot of pay-per-views. And it was a good event as well. Sports Illustrated called it a near-perfect event. 
So Cody Rhodes, this guy who was in WWE, who they didn't think anything of, they didn't think he could be a champion, they didn't think he could make money, here he is selling out a WWE type of event, making WWE type of money for the pay-per-view, and getting acclaim from Sports Illustrated. It's a big deal. He had a lot of faith in himself. Cody bet on himself. He left the WWE. He put on a pay-per-view cut all in. He saw himself as a top guy, and because of his belief in himself, he was able to do amazing things. Now, that's a great story. If we stop there, you'd be thinking, you know, that's pretty cool. Good for him. Good for Cody Rhodes. We all try to tell ourselves, you should believe in yourself. You should believe in your abilities and what you're able to do and to accomplish. We say that to our kids, saying, trust in your abilities. You can do it. We believe in you. But as Christians, we're called to a different life. We're not here to believe in ourselves. We're not here to have faith in ourselves. Yes, Cody Rhodes was able to do amazing things because of his belief in himself, but we're here to have faith in God. And how much more amazing can be the things that happen with faith in God versus just faith in yourself? And so I have a couple scriptures we're going to look at. It's more than a couple. But we're going to be looking at some scripture here about people who had faith in God, and they were able to do much more amazing things. So we're going to start off in Joshua. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up Joshua chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, I know most of these pews have Bibles in the little section in front of you, and I would encourage you to get that out. But in the book of Joshua chapter 6, I'll give you time to turn there as I'm turning there as well. The background of this section, Joshua has the, become the leader of the Israelite nation as they're leaving Egypt. They've had their exodus, and they're getting ready to go and conquer all the nations in Canaan and take over the promised land. But there was this one nation that kind of stood before them, Jericho. And Jericho had the high city walls that would be almost impossible to penetrate. And then that's where we're starting off here in chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. So here they are, this big group of people. The, their name has gone before them, and everyone's afraid of them. Joshua could have stopped and said, you know what? Look how great we are, and look how afraid of us we are. Let's go and take them. But God is saying something else to them. In verse 3, he gives them this order. He says, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. That's kind of an amazing thing to think about. God's saying you just march around the city, blow your trumpets, the walls will fall down, and the city will be yours. Joshua chose to have faith in God's directions here, and they did it. When we jump to verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed, so every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They chose to have faith. They followed God's directions, and that's an amazing thing to think about. It's written so nonchalantly, but take the moment to think about it. They marched around the city seven times. They blew their trumpets. They shouted, and the walls of the city fell down. That's an amazing thing that happened, and that couldn't have happened if they didn't have the faith. 
They have to have to have the faith for those things to happen. Faith in God, not in themselves. Now let's go ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 13. First Samuel chapter three, chapter thirteen, starting in verse twenty-three. This is the time when Saul is king, and the Philistines are attacking the kingdom. And Jonathan is the son of Saul; he's the prince, and he has an opportunity here. Verse twenty-three. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, "Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side." But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahidab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So they had this sizable force here of 600 men, but Jonathan left on his own with just his armor bearer. Verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sinna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other toward Gibeah or Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So Joshua left this army, left the king, left the priest, and he went with his armor bearer, not because he had faith in himself or in his own abilities. He tells the armor bearer, who can stop the Lord? Who can hinder the Lord from saving? We few, we can do this for the Lord. His, our faith in him will be proven right. Verse 7, the armor bearer is replying to him, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. Verse 8. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area about half an acre. That's an amazing thing that happened. And it all happened because of the faith, not that Jonathan had in himself, but the faith he had in his God. And if you follow on with that story, that leads to the eventual defeat of the Philistines at that time. But we're going to continue on to 1 Samuel chapter 17. So look, turn over a couple pages. This is probably a very familiar story for us. This is the story of David and Goliath. So starting in chapter 17 and verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sacco in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sacco and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. 
He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels and his shield bearer went ahead of him. So in other words, this guy was bad news. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Verse 10, then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And who wouldn't be? This man is huge. He's wearing armor that is heavy. He's using weapons that are huge. This is a scary sight if you only have faith in yourself. And most of them did just mainly have faith in themselves. But then we know David eventually showed up. David wasn't even a soldier. He was a shepherd. He was coming to visit his brothers, and he sees what's happening here. And David's disgusted by the whole thing. We're going to jump to uh, verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David sees this man as an enemy of God, and he's just not having it. Not because he has faith in himself. We're going to see in a second what he does have faith in from his past dealings with God. Jump to verse 34. David has gone to talk to Saul and said, let me go and challenge him. And Saul's like, why should you go and challenge him? And David's explaining why. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David's saying, it's not because of these great things I've done or because I believe in my abilities. It's because I know who was with me at those times, those challenging moments. I had faith in God, and God delivered me. He can do the same thing here. And so we jump ahead to verse 30, or excuse me. Sorry, verse, let's go ahead to verse uh, 42 or 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. 
David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. So David did an amazing thing. I know we're all kind of accustomed to the story of David and Goliath, but when you try to look at it beyond the nonchalant writ- the way it's written, you see this is amazing. This huge giant of a man using giant weapons, this great armor that had trained soldiers shaking in their sandals. The shepherd went over and did it, not because of his faith in himself, but because of his faith in God. Continuing on, we're going to the New Testament. We're going to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 24. At this time, Jesus was on his way to um, raise a, a girl from the dead. And while he was there, he was surrounded by a huge crowd of people who were following him and wanted to see what was going to be happening. Starting in verse 24. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better... She grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. That's a lot of faith from a woman who's blown her entire fortune on nothing happening. On the great minds and doctors and healers of that time, none of them could help her and things got worse. Yet she knew just by touching his cloak, she would be healed. That's great faith. Continuing on, verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out for him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So again, faith in God, amazing things. We're going to jump to Luke chapter 7. Chapter 7, starting in verse 1, this is a story of a centurion, a Roman soldier, um, and we see his faith and how that comes into play. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master highly valued, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. This man's not even a Jew. He's not even an Israelite. He didn't grow up with the prophecies of the Messiah. He's a convert who has taken up the belief so much that he helped build the synagogue there. But him hearing of Jesus, he had faith. Faith so much that he knew that at Jesus' command, he could heal a servant. 
Verse 8, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. So again, faith in God, amazing things happening. And then going back to Mark chapter 2. So Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to, G- get to him, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that leads to a discussion with the people there about forgiveness of sin. And then we're going to jump on ahead to verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking about these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And all this had the opportunity to happen because of the faith of those friends. They had such faith that they were willing to dig through the roof of a house to lower their friend in in the middle of this huge crowd of people because they had faith that Jesus could heal them. With faith in God, amazing things can happen. Jesus himself talks about faith, and we're going to look at two instances of that. Um, Since we're already in Mark, let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 11. That way I'm not making you jump around all the time. So Mark chapter 11, verse 22 through 24. This was after an instance of when Jesus had cursed a tree, and they had noticed that the tree had withered. And Peter said, starting in verse 21, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And this is Jesus' response, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Faith can do amazing things. Jesus says, faith can put a mountain into the sea. Believe in what you ask for. And then now we look in Luke chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Again, Jesus says, amazing things can happen when you have faith. Not in yourself, but in God. 
And that's kind of the closing message I have for you here. Cody Rhodes had faith in himself, and he did amazing things. He left the one place where he was supposed to be able to make money and be a star. He bet on himself and his abilities, and he proved that he could make money and be a star just on his own. And kind of as an ending to that story, Cody Rhodes got so big that WWE actually brought him back. He is now back there, and he's a star in their company. But that all happened because of his faith in himself. But think about us as Christians. How much more amazing will be the things that happen when you have faith in God?